When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reality Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Talking Real Money. I'm Don McDonald with a little bit of a program note before we get into the program itself. This week, the week of the 16th of May, I'm going to be taking a few days off. I'm in a uh, student film that's being filmed this week and so tom will be filling in for a couple of shows we may also have a best of something from the archives that hasn't been heard in many many years that doesn't exist in the current archives shows we found years ago and uh also the video podcast will not be presented this week just like it was not last week due to retire meet so just some changes in the schedule I hope you'll understand, but today we have a great show for you because Tom just finished reading a book that he found fascinating. The book is called The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. And Tom had the opportunity to talk with the book's author, Eric Balchunas. And uh, here now is the interview with the author of The Bogle Effect. Our guest is the author of that book. He's also senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, Eric Balchunas. Thank you for joining us on uh, Talking Real Money. Great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. So I got to say, I mean, this is now I people know this. I had the opportunity to interview Bogle a few times, certainly know his work well. We're, I'm a huge fan of Vanguard. We'll talk a little bit about the company. But I think to the investing public, he's a relatively minor figure. So why write this book? Well, that's part of the reason um, I had uh, written a article for Bloomberg Opinion about five years ago, basically outlining that, that Vanguard had saved um, investors about half a trillion. And then I extrapolated about how that would be a trillion very soon and two trillion. And uh, a guy from Deadspin picked up on this and in his own millennial way wrote about the real MFing people, uh, hero of the people. And he compared him to, to Che Guevara and stuff. And it was a kind of cool millennial digital spin on Vogel, who again, uh, is grandfatherly looking mutual funds are boring to people. And so people miss him. I think they don't really, I don't think they really catch on how revolutionary this guy was. And then a, another millennial publication picked up on that guy's article and their title was some guy you've never heard of saved us all billions of dollars. So I just want to maybe get the – now you've heard of them because I think in, the, in Wall Street's history, most of the stuff that gets covered or turned into books or movies is bad stuff. And so – and people have probably had their own bad experience, either getting put into a crappy fund or possibly even swindled like, the, like Madoff did. And I think it's just nice to have a story about a guy whose whole life did so much good and basically trace it out and deconstruct it and really painstakingly show how big this is, both for the regular person, and I also wrote it for the industry, because I think if you're in this industry, 
you need a plan for the Bogle effect. Um, it's coming. It's just rippling out throughout the whole ecosystem and now globally. And so it just really is monumental when you start to think about the influence and impact one person could have and how unusual it is. Mostly people are, if there's ever a goods article, about, I mean, if, if there are people who are sort of maybe put on a pedestal on Wall Street, it's someone like Buffett or Peter Lynch who played the game well. I get it. You know, and that's fun. Some people like to speculate, follow the way their strategies work. But this guy changed the game. So to me, he was like a whole different species, uh, almost a one of a kind. And I, I wanted to capture all that. Um, hopefully I did. <laughs> I think you definitely did. I mean, there's a question that I would have around that is we have thousands of people listen to our podcast every day. They are, for the most part, sort of passive or index investors. Did, did, should they be reading this book? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really, first of all, the, I went deep and I went wide. So even if you know this a little bit, even if you know Vanguard is a company, they mainly do index funds and Bogle was this, you know, index fund guy. Uh, I think you'll get a lot more out of it, especially how Vanguard's mutual ownership structure works. To me, that's really almost more important than the index fund. Uh, that structure has lowered fees in the funds for 45 years. And that's the reason we have this investing utopia today. It's also the structure of Bogle himself. He was not normal. And uh, deconstructing those two things, I think will be good. I have read many books over the past years. The ones that aren't about like bad things happening on Wall Street are, you know, maybe advisors who write about what to think about when you invest or behavior. And at the end of the book, most of them end up with the conclusion that you should just buy and hold an index fund. Or that is what they do with their own money. So I do think this is a good good time to go right to the source. This guy made the tools, made the philosophy. And by understanding this, I think you really uh, can, can latch on to this concept of Vogelism, low-cost index funds, by learning the story, learning how it works in different environments, and learning the impact across the board. I just think it would help you as an investor. It will probably reaffirm what you're doing. That's my guess. Um, and it might challenge you a little bit. You know, Bogle was, was very much a Puritan. I think even the most Boglean people aren't as pure as he was. He, most people have maybe a couple funds in their portfolio, at least if not maybe a dozen. He was like, you don't even need all that. You know, he was very, very much um, hardcore in how simple he thought things should be. And that to come to that conclusion, that place of frictionless simplicity – took him a whole lifetime. But to, fo to follow that, I think it, it's just very interesting and will probably um, help investors who, who do invest in index funds, you know, maybe understand more or maybe even just appreciate how hard and unusual it is that we're in this place now. It's really almost like an anomaly in physics that the Vanguard mutual ownership structure even exists. Because no one's copied it in 45 years. That's how unusual it is. So I don't know. I, I, that's, that's something um, that I, I think people would get out of it. And there's also some, some – uh, there's Chapter 8. I go into the worries on passive. Um, and I think in there, there's some interesting um, information about the size of the market and the size of indexing and how, um, how flows work and sell-offs. I, I think people can get a lot out of that. Um, I put a lot of my data analyst, my senior ETF analyst hat on in the book. So there is some depth there. It's not just Bogle's story. It's there, There's a lot to chew on, and hopefully I did that 
um, throughout the book so that I was trying to appease maybe somebody who doesn't know a lot at the same time, leaving enough nuggets and good data for people who do know what an index fund is and maybe are even in, in the industry and work in the industry. Yeah, and I think the book does that well. We're talking with Eric Baltunas. He is the author of The Bogle Effect about John Bogle and Vanguard and all the great things he did. But before we even get into, and you've, you've, you've given away a few of my ideas, but let's just talk about John Bogle, the man. Now, I when I read the book, I thought it sounded like my dad. Uh, definitely a man of the Great Depression, Princeton grad. I think he was a, had a tendency to say no first <laughs> if you came to him. And having interviewed him a few times, I mean, we used to talk to him about owning small caps. Like, oh, you don't need those. International, ah, oh, you don't need that. Just the S&P 500 <laughs> and you're fine. We used oh, to yeah. get these arguments with him. And he had a tendency to say no first. And I think what I got out of your book, too, is he had a tendency to say no. And then sometimes he'd sort of soften a little bit and say, well, maybe there's some room to negotiate because ETFs, he was, you know, your guy who covers ETFs. He basically said, no way. ETFs are bad news because you can sit around and trade them all day. And that's you don't want people trading. So if you were going to give a description of him, how would how would you best describe John Bogle, the man? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny the no thing because I frequently describe my interviews with him because I would go into his office and I realized he had a he was like doing the same thing I was. He was looking at like papers of like ETF data because a lot of his later years he's trying to make the case against ETFs and so we debated a lot and I would send up stuff like, "Well, isn't smart beta ETF better than an active manager?" Uh, or what about international or what about this? And I felt like a skeet shooting box that was setting the skeets up and he would just blow them out of the air one after another. And he just, like I said, he was pure, pure about that. And I, I do think he was uh, unbending. He was hardcore, cantankerous, thrifty. Um, I think he was also, you know, like, like um, a bit of a zealot, you know, he really believed in this one thing truly and completely. And you know, that, that rubbed people the wrong way sometimes. But I, I will say, you know, there was a heart there, um, literally and figuratively. He had problems with his heart his whole life. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that being close to death helped him have a real – he was always about to die, um, according to his doctor. So being close to death, I think, gives you a jolt to life and, and hopefully some appreciation for things. And one thing I noticed about him that I made me um, increase my – net positive framing of the man was that he would be he was friends with a lot of active managers so and he was um friendly with people in the etf industry who competed against them i, I thought i would call these people and they'd be like this guy is awful he was just constantly crapping on my line of work um but they they kind of liked him and i think they wanted to be pushed to be better i also think he was good about separating somebody's industry and their job from the human being they were which allowed him to be friendly with a lot of people who he disagreed with. So he was friendly with Nate Most, who invented the ETF, who obviously that wouldn't be somebody you would think he, you know, he dumped on the ETFs constantly. He was friendly with many active managers and most of his, um, his former assistants that I talked to all said good things about him and they would be, they would have been close to him. And even though he was tough boss, sometimes they all, they all liked him and they, they really thought highly of his mission and what he was doing. Um, and so I think he was he was tough and, and cantankerous, but at the end of the day, I think he was a real nice human being as well. And he really, um, you know, had a good life. Uh, you know, and his uh, his son seemed to 
really, he said, he's, you know, my dad's my hero. He was home at night to play, you know, to eat dinner. And I would, he hung out with me. So he didn't, you know, even though he's on this grand mission, he didn't forget the, the relationships and the humanity that makes life worth living. He really lived like a classic life, in my opinion, like a, you think you're going to read about Theodore Roosevelt or someone like that. Bogle seemed to live one of these like just big lives that was, you know, the kind of guy who would return letters and write you back. Just, you know, very old school in that way. And that's why I dedicated the book to my great, my grandparents and the World War II generation, because they were like that too. Uh, and I felt that, you know, hanging out with him was not like hanging out with a boomer. Um, he was definitely of that other generation. And, oh, um, I don't think so, yeah. it comes through. It comes through very nicely, think, yeah. Eric, in the book. No question. Uh, so let's just talk about a couple of the things around that. Um, obviously, I mean, to the world, I think John Bogle is the f- sort of father of modern indexing, even though I don't think he had the first index fund. But you correctly point out and something that's very overlooked, and that is setting up this company that a really a lo- not only, you know, push the index fund out but the 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 fee structure has gotten lower and lower and lower this mutual aspect talk a little bit about that and what that really means to people that are not just at vanguard but industry-wide who use index funds yeah so uh, you know the uh, big thesis of the book is that index funds needed vanguard way more than vanguard needed index funds bogle did not invent indexing um vanguard the company was originally designed as a back office company to basically do administrative tasks for the Wellington funds. It was a basically a compromise situation from a partnership that turned bad. I won't go into the details, but it certainly wasn't Bogle like woke up one day and, and said, oh, I have this altruistic vision for a basically nonprofit asset manager. It was really born out of a nastiness situation. And it was he needed to do this to keep his job. But I will say somewhere in the back of Bogle's head, he had always been about um, you know, uh, his, th- his thesis at Princeton was all about, um, you know, fiduciary and, you know, looking at the client first. So I think when he had an opportunity to have a company like this, he really went, went off with it. But essentially all this company is, it's like a mutual ownership com- uh, structure in the insurance industry. So it's the funds own Vanguard and the investors in the funds effectively own Vanguard ipso facto. So when they have assets come in, right, and there's profits, there's extra money. Because the owners are the funds, they vote to lower the fees. And there's just no owner becoming like a Jeff Bezos here. Like other companies that get big, usually the owner becomes like a you know billionaire 1,800 times over. None of that happens here. So essentially, I guess it's almost like a co-op in a way, where you would vote for what's best for the people in the organization uh, that are the clients. And over the years, as, as the assets got bigger, the fees got lower, attracted more assets, and then the fees got lower more. And so rinse and repeat for 45 years, and now we have uh, a utopia where you can get an index fund that covers the whole market for three basis points, not just from Vanguard, but from BlackRock and Schwab and Fidelity. The ultimate is when Fidelity threw in the towel, launched index funds, and now theirs are actually somewhat cheaper than Vanguard's, and they advertise that in the press release. That's how much Bogle won won the argument and the, and the, the battle. And I think... That utopia would not be there if it weren't for the ownership structure. If you just had index funds, my belief is in Vanguard, if it, let's just say Bogle hadn't existed, you'd probably have index mutual funds. They'd probably be 70, 80 basis points. And if there was a company that came along and did it real cheap, it would probably 
subsidize that some other way. It would sell your money or make interest off of it. It would it would do something to have to make money off your money. And Vanguard, there is none of that. It's an organic process, but it did take 45 years to play out. And I give Bogle a lot of credit because as this process was playing out and he started the index fund, even though now it seems like a great concept, it didn't really catch on at first. He had to really sell it. And because Vanguard would not pay brokers, they operated outside of the entire system. So he was outside of this huge system of incentives. And, and it, took, it took him a long time. He also had to sell indexing uh, as not being average. Um, and that just took a long time. It took some creativity. And I go through a whole thing because a lot of people I interviewed were like, I can't believe how long it, it, took, it took to get popular. And so I explore that because one of the, one of the things that's interesting is 97, 98% of Vanguard's assets today have come after Bogle stepped down as CEO. So he was only there for like 2% of the current AUM, which tells you how much he toiled in oblivion trying to explain this. Also, the mutual ownership structure took time to go from 45 basis points, which is the original fee of the index fund, down to 20, down to 10, down to 3. So Bogle was really the created a foundation that you could build the Empire State Building on. And, and they did. And once it took off, bam. I mean, and he caught everybody else in the industry flat-footed. They didn't really share a lot of their economies of scale when they had the chance. And once cost became a thing, look out. I mean, this company has been taking in a billion a day for a decade, which is so absurd. I mean, we take that for granted, but that number also drove me to study this because that's, that's insane. Whatever company has done that, and they do it like every day, day in and day out. Um, it's amazing. Well, you know, let's talk about that for a minute because today Vanguard, I think you, I think you pegged them at eight trillion or something. I mean, I didn't realize how big they were, but and yet at the same time, there's other people that are doing. I mean, you could go to Fidelity, you could go to Schwab, you could go to BlackRock, you could own exchange traded funds. You could actually go to Fidelity and have a a free fund, right? With nothing. And Vanguard has these other. You hear about the because we run into people have the service issues with them. They have a private equity fund they're working on. There's some suggestion they're too big. So is it really the same company that he set up and left a long time ago? <laughs> well, that's the big question today. I've been asked about this a couple times in the past few weeks. Um, no, you know, and this is, I'll have a chapter called Vanguard versus Bogle or Bogle versus Vanguard. And they, they had their, their disagreements um, over the years, um, right, as, you know, right when he stepped down as CEO, they went into ETFs, and he didn't want that. So it started off right then. Um, Brennan, the next CEO, built a uh, – he really grew the company asset-wise. Um, and there was a lot of uh, – you know, I, I don't know. There could have been some hurt feelings. He had some difficulty with uh, his uh, that particular uh, CEO. And then ultimately, uh, Bogle was just Bogle. And I think over the years, he, he felt that Vanguard would be – his fear was that Vanguard would get too big. And that, you know, it would cease to be sensitive to the fact that all of these 30 million people are real people and that it would become a bureaucracy. You know, he said that we have such a good situation and we're like the fourth leader in the industry. But and, and unlike those other ones, they uh, were predicated on beating the market for a while. But when they stopped beating the market, they, they fell. We offer the market and we offer it cheap. Our biggest, his biggest fear was that they become too big. And that's why he railed against that. So Vanguard, the company though, does seem to be ambitious. They're getting into wealth management and because they're in wealth management, it's going to get them into other areas like private equity. It's possible there could be a Vanguard crypto offering down the road 
Once you're an advisor and wealth manager to very wealthy people, you have to have stuff on the shelf for them. You can't just have an index fund. So this is going to take Vanguard in some different places. But I, I'm torn on this. On one hand, maybe it's good that Vanguard, maybe private equity needs a little Vanguarding. You know, maybe crypto needs a little Vanguarding. I know that the commission-free trading thing was basically kicked off by Vanguard. So even though Bogle wouldn't have liked it, you could say, well, maybe it's good to send that ownership structure into these other areas. It would help investors long term in those areas. On the flip side, obviously, Bogle had uh, wanted to make sure all the customers were treated correctly um, and get it, paid attention to. I mean, this is a guy who saved him like every letter he got, and I don't, it's hard to do that with thirty million people. Plus, Vanguard takes in over a quarter, or is has over a quarter of the assets in the whole fund industry. So their market share is about twenty seven percent, but they only take in five percent of the revenue. And that 5% of the revenue, that's why people like them. That gap is why they're beloved. But that 5% of the revenue, you know, there's not a ton of excess money flowing around to do this and that. you got to be pretty diligent with how you spend it. And so right now they're struggling with their customer service, in my opinion. And it, it's going to be interesting to see them navigate through this. Um, that's why I named the book The Bogle Effect. I was going to name it The Vanguard Effect. But I felt as though Vanguard, run by mere mortals, <laughs> not Bogle, it's possible it goes into this other place some down the line, but that Bogle and his philosophy, you know, he almost created like a religion of thinking, low costs, don't trade. And the Bogle heads, I think, are carrying that on. That's going to be around for a long time. And that ultimately is a touchstone people can keep coming back to. Whereas the company itself, uh, it's, you know, we know from the history that Bogle was just very unique. And it's possible over time, Vanguard gets run by somebody who just, I don't know, is just not in the same vein as him and does some things and all of a sudden they just stumble. I mean, we don't know. So that's why I purposely put his name front and center. You know, we're talking with Eric Balchunas. He's written the book, The Bogle Effect. Just a couple more questions for you. And you raised this earlier. I think it was in Robin Wigglesworth's book, uh, Trillions as well, about the passive or index industry. Is there a place where it gets too big and you start to worry about the corporate governance and some of these other things that sort of pop up? Is that really a problem? I don't know. Um, I think it's all overhyped. First of all, you know, no S&P 500 is different than the Russell 1000, and these indexes are built differently, just like active management strategies are built somewhat differently. But in the end, all active mutual funds and all indexes really do – they own the same stocks. They own Apple. They own Google. They own Amazon. They might make some tweaks on the edges. But all that really has happened is we've gone from closet indexing to actual indexing. People are owning the same stuff. They just own it for an eighth or a tenth of the cost. Who Can you blame them? So I don't really think that's a problem. I just think that's completely fine. Um, the corporate governance is maybe something to watch. Vanguard owns 8% of Exxon. Um, BlackRock owns 6.5%. So collectively, they're now 12, 13%. Um, and then you've got State Street with another three. Um, you know, they're going to have some influence on these companies. But I think they're, they're all three of them are good companies. They're solid companies. My theory, my, what I might take in the book is they should figure out a way to some, some type democratize it whenever they can. Give the vote and the power to the people. Maybe you poll the investors to just find out what they feel in terms of key corporate governance issues and then just vote accordingly. Um, but I talked to advisors even who are pretty into this stuff and most of them didn't even care how they voted and they're invested in my, my investors never ask about this. So I think some of this 
you know, I call the chapter some worry in quotes. A lot of this is inside baseball stuff to kick around with us in the industry. I don't, I don't know how much any normal person cares or needs to care. And the sell-offs have shown that, if anything, the passive people are pretty, pretty good. They, they don't really run for the hills. And so I suspect they're actually good for market stability, not bad, because we've seen it sell-off after sell-off. So um, I just – I don't know. I just don't worry that much. I feel like the overall benefit and the, the money that gets to go towards the person's investments and their retirement and all that – is a really great benefit. And yeah, we'll watch, you know, we'll keep watching. Um, I asked Warren Buffett about this because I was curious his take. And he said, well, look, uh, down the road, there could be some regulatory uh, changes to figure this out. But that's a question for another day. And I think I'd agree with him. I think at some point they may have a rule where a company can't own, say, more than 15% of a stock. But right now the rule is a fund and, a fu- and it's 10%. But you could always just create a total market two fund, a three. There is no limit, and the reason is because that rule was uh, made back in the day when fund companies typically had one fund, but now they're complexes. So I think they might do something where the complex can't own more than 15%. I don't know. We'll see. Um, the, the SEC asked the SEC this question. Their answer was, well, active's going to have a big comeback, so this will all take care of itself in the market. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think, they, I think they're way off there. I, I think this is over. If anything, a bear market's going to accelerate the move to passive and the market share uh, rise of Vanguard and, and BlackRock. Well, and the, the active passive, I don't want to get too far into that, but I, you know, with Elon Musk now saying more people need to be active investors, uh, that, that, I, don't, I, don't know, I just I giggle. Uh, you're really fighting a trend there. But before we let you go, <laughs> you, you raise another interesting topic for people sort of in the business and people who observe it. Um, the financial advising industry, you know, is typically charged 1%. And now we're, we're in the situation with a lot of consolidation in that industry. These are mainly been mom and pop kind of uh, advisory firms. And now they're all getting rolled up into bigger firms. And some of those have gone public, et cetera. But you, in your book, predict, I think I have this right, that falling fees will lead to a drop of 50% in in financial advising revenue. So, how soon, I guess, and who's ripe to fall under that scenario? Because somebody's going to go down, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, it's just like the asset management industry. I think the middle is in, is in a tough spot. These would be brokers, people who might not do a lot for that 1%. Um, the, the people who are really specialized, we're dealing with super wealthy people, probably fine. The people who are regionally based are real small. Like, I think there's one advisor who does, like, the pro fishing tour. Like people like that are probably good, but it's this sort of middle, like the wirehouses and these, these areas, I think they're going to be disrupted. I think Betterment has also started to do some disrupting there. And Betterment, by the way, that guy started the firm totally from Bogle. I mean, this guy was, that was his hero. And that's part of the effect is this influence he's having spiritually, not just, um, you know, copying index fund. Here's an advisor who set up a, a low cost advisor. Vanguard is now in the wealth management industry. The current CEO of Vanguard said, advisors, you're next. We're coming for you. And they charge 30 basis points to five, depending on how much money you have. And Vanguard, it's not just robos. They have a thousand certified financial professionals working there, which a lot of people don't realize um, that how many actual CFPs are are there. Schwab is starting this. So I think you're going to find like low cost, like the way that discount brokerages really took over. You're going to see discount like, like uh, advisory services, that's going to hurt the gravy middle. But I think they're on the edges. You're going to be fine. 
I personally think everything in this whole industry is just going to slowly turn into the airlines or the banks where you get all this consolidation. looks like the March Madness brackets. And you end up with like, you know, four or five monster companies that do 70, 80% of all of the market share. And then you have this constant, uh, these specialty services for the uh, remaining, um, like, you know, Hawaiian Air or whatever. Um, I think that's just the way things go in business. And I think we're not, the bull market has slowed that process down because it's offset the outflows. But once that happens, I think they're in trouble. I, I would, I caution advisors in my book, and I'm friends with a lot of them. Yes, they went from commission-based to getting um, a percentage of your fee, which in my opinion is a move in the right direction. But at 1%, if your assets double and you did no extra work, you doubled your revenue on a dollar basis, there's something a little wrong with that. And it's the dollar fees that I think if you're in this industry, uh, you know, be honest with yourself and how much you, can you share some of that when you have the chance. And that's what the asset managers didn't do in the 80s and 90s. They could have shared a little of that gravy those dollar fees um, with them. Obviously, you need 1% when you're starting. But as you get bigger and bigger, I think some of that can be shared in the form of lower fees in a Vanguard style. You don't have to be an ownership structure, but you can maybe like emulate that a little bit. And I think that's what I think that's a lesson from the book, hopefully. And I think that's ultimately what's going to happen to advisors next. Well, we'll see. Maybe you can write your next book on the advisory business. This is a great book, <laughs> The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Eric Balchunas, you can also see his work, of course, at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is still one of the printed magazines I read cover to cover every week. I think the work there is exceptional. And we thank you for being a part of uh, Talking Real Money. Thank you for having me, Tom. It was a pleasure. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. As you keep the lawyers happy.